And we love our team here at Anchor Church. We believe that this is a space where people can discover their destiny, where we can be involved in something that God is doing. I was driving over here this morning and uh, just praying, and, and I just thank God for the privilege that we have to be a part of the move of God here in our city, to be a part of what He is doing, to be a part of His story, um, and to be a part of seeing lives changed. And, and, uh, and we pray for, for people that don't know Jesus, people that don't want to come to church, people that feel like God is, has forgotten them or rejected them or maybe don't even know if they know if God exists. Um, and we pray that God will bring those people here and that they will find something authentic, something real, and discover what the gospel is really all about, which isn't rules and regulations and, and laws to follow, but, but an understanding that we are out of our depth from the beginning, an understanding that we could never have done anything to save ourselves, and we could never do anything to keep ourselves safe outside of our faith in God who has done it all for us. This is the message of the gospel, and it's a message that we as a church are incredibly passionate about. Because Paul said uh, to, uh, when he wrote in the book of Galatians, he said that even if an angel appears and preaches another gospel, and he says not that there is another one, but everything else is just a perversion of the gospel, even if somebody comes and preaches a different message to you, even if it's an angel, let him be accursed, let him be cut off, because there is only one message that we have to hold on to. There is only one hope that we have, and that's really our theme for Christmas, and it's our theme for our church. The anchor is the anchor of hope, and that's what it says in Hebrews 6, that we have this hope, not just hope in general, but this hope of what Jesus has done for us as the anchor of our souls. And your soul includes all of your life. It includes your emotions. It includes your will. It includes your mind. And, and, and it includes your spirit. It includes everything that God has, your heart. We are anchored. We are, we are founded. We are established in a hope that is not a shakable hope, that is not a temporal hope, that's not okay, I have enough money in my bank account and, I, and my career is looking okay and my relationships are doing fine, so now I'm, I have a, this you know, semblance of, of control in my life. Um, it, instead, it's, it's an eternal hope, a hope that cannot be shaken. The Bible says that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, an unshakable kingdom, and we have an unchanging person in the form of Jesus who secures us and holds us, and that is our hope. That is our strength. That is our boldness. And the moment we shift our focus from that to us, and okay, we must do this, and we, and it's up to us, and if I don't do that, and, if, and it's this give and get, and it's this, it's this, you put yourself on a roller coaster ride. Your faith will be eroded, and you will have to lie to yourself to tell yourself that you are confident in your future because you won't know if you've done enough. How much is enough? How do you ever know if you've done enough? The goalposts are always shifting when you get stuck into religion, when you get stuck into, I must do this in order for God to do that. You will never feel confident before God. Whereas Paul says, I stand before God and my conscience is clear. And if my conscience does not uh, condemn me, then I have confidence before God. So we can have a clear conscience this morning knowing that whatever you have done wrong in your life, whatever areas you still fail in, whatever places you still struggle in, that you are not disqualified, you are not rejected, you are not cast out, you are not less blessed because of your flaws, you're simply in a place to depend more greatly on the sufficiency of Jesus. And that is a place that, that, that gives us hope where we can know that it's, it's all about Him. And so last week, um, we spoke about how Christmas is a time to celebrate a God who shows up. 
that we serve a God who doesn't look on our calamity, look on our sin, look on our difficulty, look on our suffering, look at our difficult seasons, and just kind of say, okay, well, you guys sort that out. I told you not to do that, and you've gone ahead and done it anyway, so now it's up to you to fix it. He's not a God who stays distant or dormant. Um, he's not a God who remains removed from, from what we're experiencing, but he's a God who shows up. It's the, it's the beauty and the essence of, of those who, who sat in darkness have seen a great life, this God who sent his only son for us. He's a God who shows up, and we spoke last week about how we experience moments of pain, and oftentimes we don't know why, and we think that if we get an answer for our suffering, that we'll be satisfied only to realize that it's not the answer that satisfies us, but the answerer. It's not the answers to the questions, why God, but it's God who, when he shows up in his presence, we find complete peace without having to have the answer, because the answer is simply, I am God. I am God. You don't have to understand. You can trust. And there is rest in that, knowing that we serve a good God who loves us. And we looked at the story of Job and how he says, in the past, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. When you come to trust God in a way that goes beyond your understanding, what essentially happens is that you find rest and you find peace and you begin to see Jesus. You begin to see his sufficiency. And so we're celebrating Christmas and we're celebrating a God who shows up. And the question today is, what about when I sin? What about when I have failed? What about when I have made mistakes? Will God still show up in my life? Will he still bless me? Will he still work through me? Does he still have a plan for me if I have broken my promise to him 10,000 times? How many of you have made promises to God before? God, I promise if you do this for me, I will do that for you. I promise, God, that if, that if, that if you, know, you know, I'll never, ever do this again. I make a vow. You might even have gone out into the garden, got some stones, built a little altar, you know, like sacrificed a locust. I don't know what you built on your, put on your little, but it's this whole like commemoration. I promise, God, from this day, you mark it on your calendar. I'll never break this vow. And then like two days later, you're like, all right, God, I did it again. I'm sorry. You know, I, I thought I would be able to do it, but I, I just, I'm not. And, and then you make another promise and another promise. And I have had so many people as a pastor ask me the question, how many times will God still forgive me? How many times will it be until he goes, listen, I'm not going to, as if God didn't know, you know? Like God's like, no, no, I believed you the first three times, but now I'm done with you, right? I'm done with you. And we, we kind of tend to put God in that human form and shape where we think that he is like us who can run out of grace or run out of um, the ability to understand or forgive. And so I love the fact that the hope that we have is a hope for our greatest need. What God gave us is the hope and the answer and the gift for our greatest need, which is our need to be redeemed from our own lawlessness and from our debt that we owe uh, to the law. Um, you know, we, we, are, we need to be bought back. We need to be ransomed because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. All of us have fallen short. And so there is a debt that needed to be paid because under the law we are guilty. And that is where God answered our prayers. In Romans 8 verse 3, I want to start off in Romans 8 this morning. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can turn with me to Romans 8. I'm going to look at, at a few scriptures before I get to uh, John 11, which is where I want to land this morning. But in Romans 8 verse 3, it simply says this. It says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law could not do. The law is incapable of saving you. 
because it is weakened through the flesh. Nothing wrong with the law of God, it's just that there's something wrong with us. And that we are unable to fulfill the law in our own strength. So where we thought the law could save us, we recognize that because of our flesh, we are not able to fulfill the law. And so God came and did what we could not do. He is the hope for humanity. The hope for the hopeless. The hope for the hardened heart. That's what we have in Jesus. And I'm so thankful to him for this hope. Because what God, God has done, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. We could not overcome the sinfulness of our own hearts in our own strength, but God came and did so through his son Jesus, and he shows up, he shows up even in our sinfulness. He shows up and gives us hope for our humanity. And let's, let's just go ahead and pray, and I wanna talk about this a little bit this morning. Jesus, we thank you so much that you showed up and that you've showed up here this morning right now. We thank you, God, that you are able to speak, you are able to change, you're able to reveal, you're able to break off religious mindsets and molds, you're able to set us free from feeling like we need to earn your goodness, earn your grace, earn a place at your feet. We thank you, God, that you have enveloped us with your love, you have thrown your arms around us, and that there is nothing that can disqualify us from that because you have qualified us and made us sufficient, made us worthy through Jesus. We thank you, God, that you showed up when we had our greatest need, which was our need for redemption. And we thank you, God, that you continue to show up in our lives every single day. There's nothing that separates any of us from your goodness and your grace and your plan for our lives, but we can have full confidence, full assurance that you will do all things that you have prepared for us in and through our lives. And we thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. So I don't know if you've ever made a bad choice and like immediately regretted it afterwards. Any of you ever done that? Like as you make the choice or, or as you said the words, it's like you wish you could grab a hold of them and stick them back in your mouth because you knew, like, like that time you told your wife to relax. Any guys ever made that mistake, you know? It's like as you're saying, you're like, relax, and you can just see this is trouble. I shouldn't have done it. I'm, I'm sorry, you know? Or, or uh, this sometimes happens to me. Fortunately, it happens to me less. But when I was a kid, um, my, my grandfather, he led a church, and around uh, the corner from the church that he led in the final years of his life, there was this bakery, it was this Dutch bakery, and they made incredible pies and custard slices. And so sometimes when I walk into a petrol station or a bakery or something, the pie still calls my name because it's like my childhood, and you take it home, you take it out the little thing, you put some you know, chutney on it or tomato sauce on it, like how we used to do when we were kids. And, and so sometimes I look at it, and I, and, I, and I realize that this is a bad idea. I realize that this pie will bring me nothing but heartburn and agony for the next 24 hours at least. And yet, we sometimes still think this time will be different, right? This looks like a good pie. I'm pretty sure this pie is on my side. And, um, and so you buy it, and then you can't sleep at night because of the heartburn. And, 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 and as you eat it, or you know, like, I shouldn't eat too many sugary things. And as you eat it, you're like, why did I eat it? I feel horrible for having now done this. And, um, and so sometimes we do stuff that has this instant sense of regret immediately after having done it. And um, I remember when Eli, my oldest boy, when he was um, only about two or three years old, um, I got a, a call from, from the school. And, um, and he was apparently in the class, and all the kids were told that they should sit. And so... 
Um, he didn't listen to his teacher at that time, and he decided to, instead of sitting, kind of go the complete opposite way, and so he jumped over another boy instead. But as he jumped over the other boy, he came down right in front of a concrete bench that had like a sharp wooden corner on it, and the bench hit him right in the forehead and completely like split his forehead open, and it was so bad that the school actually phoned the ambulance, and so, you know, when you get a phone call from the school and go, there's been an accident, but it's not bad, don't worry, but just to be sure, the ambulance has taken him to hospital. I'm like, you guys are lying to me, you know? If you've ever had your school give you one of those, those speeches. And so, and so um, you know, I went there, and he, was, he seemed okay until they opened up, and I looked at what it actually looked like, and then I had to sit down. It was like, it's like the pediatrics. So I sat down in a cot. Eventually, I lay down. Eventually, the nurses brought me a toasted sandwich. Uh, it was just too much um, for my senses at the time. Um, but he ended up needing plastic surgery to fix the size of the hole that he had in his head. And afterwards, the teacher told me that, um, that as it started bleeding, as he jumped over and, you know, the bench hit him in the head and, and the blood started coming out, the first thing he said is, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Like, like instant regret. Sit down. No. Okay, I'm so sorry. That was the wrong decision. I should have listened, right? And there are so many times in life that we make these kinds of choices where we instantly feel the impact of our choices. We instantly feel the, the consequence of what we have done, and, and, and we know that we should have done the right thing, but instead we did something different. And, um, and I think that for some reason a lot of Christians think that the reason why people do things that are wrong is because they don't know the right thing to do. Right? So, so we just need to bring them into church and then tell them, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. Do the right thing. And then they're all going to go out and go, if somebody had only told me. Like, is there anybody here that doesn't know that it's wrong to be dishonest? Okay, great. So we all know. So let's go home. Because we we're fine. We're fine. You know? And people, for some reason, they think that if we can just tell believers or, or, or non-believers or people or humanity what is right and wrong, then they'll have the power to go and do it. And so, so many Christians and churches and, and messages that have been extracted from the Bible um, without the heart of it um, is just flying the flag of moralism. Let's just be moral, you know? Just, just do what Jesus did. You know how many people uh, used to wear those bangles, you know, what would Jesus do? I believe what would Jesus do is, is, is a bad question if you don't first have a bangle that says, what, what has Jesus done? What has he done? Not what would he do, but what has he done for you? Because the reason why people are doing things that they shouldn't be doing is not because they don't know the difference between right and wrong. It's because knowing what is right doesn't necessarily give us the power to choose what is right. Many people hate the fact that they are drug addicts, hate the fact that they have a, an issue with their temper. And for me to sit in front of somebody who struggles with an addiction or who struggles with, with a temper or who struggles with, with whatever it might be and say, just stop doing it. It doesn't give them the ability to not do it. And that's where we, as the church, through our messages, have so often failed our cities and our communities and the people that have desired change in their lives. We've made it a works program. We've made it a, 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 a self-help program. I was at a braai with my family 
uh, I think it was a weekend or two ago, we have this annual golf tournament, and uh, we, we usually have a braai afterwards, and so we were there in braaiing, and this massive thunderstorm uh, just arrived and kind of blew the whole party away, and we had to pull the braai in, you know, underneath this little veranda, and there was a lot of smoke in the room, so as a result, we closed the glass door, um, and we warned everybody there's a glass door here, and then my cousin who warned everybody, like two minutes later, walked straight into the glass door. Anybody here ever walk into a glass door? Like the most traumatic thing that can happen to a human being, you want to pretend like it hasn't happened, but there is sufficient mucus on the glass and a nice, neat imprint of your face to prove that it actually did happen. And it's always humiliating, no matter how many times you do it, um, and the humiliation is di directly proportional to the speed and confidence with which you walk into that door. And, um, and many times, us trying to do the right thing is exactly like that. Whenever we say, well, I know, what's, I know the right thing. I know, you know, I've, I've been in church all my life. I know I'm supposed to do A, B, and C. There it is, I'm gonna go do it. And then you confidently and boldly walk into it, and what you walk into, the, into is the end of yourself. And you know what's so frustrating about walking to a glass door is so you, you can so clearly see what you're meant to do. You can so clearly see the steps that you were supposed to take, but you didn't realize that there was going to be a glass wall that you were going to walk into. And that's what happens when we walk into the end of ourselves. We, we, it's, it, it leaves us almost in a place of being disillusioned. We read the Bible and all the things that God has called us to do, and then we attempt to do them. We try to make the right choices, but for some reason we struggle. and We keep making the wrong ones. And sometimes the, the harder we try, the harder we fail. The, the faster we walk, the, the bigger the, the imprint on the glass when we've walked into it. And I want to let you know, if you've ever felt that way, you're not the first person to feel this way. This is a common experience, and oftentimes how God reveals what he wants to do in our lives to us. In Romans 7, verse 14, we actually see how, how Paul himself struggled and wrestled with this. In Romans 7, it says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then he says in verse 18, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. If you have not come to this understanding in your faith, then you are still trying to serve Jesus in the flesh. If you have not come to the realization and the honest admittance that you don't have what it takes to obey God, then in essence, you're still trying to save yourself and be good enough to enter into heaven and into God's plans for your life in your own righteousness. And this is where we miss what Jesus came to do. This is where it speaks about the Pharisees, the religious people, and it says they, not being able to, they, wanting to establish their own righteousness, were not able to submit to the righteousness which came from God. That is why trusting in Jesus is death to self. Because you let go of any shred of personal claim on righteousness. You say, I can't, Jesus. I need you. I need you. 
And if there is anything good in me, it is because of you. And if I am able to do anything that is in accordance with your will, it's only because of your grace. It's a right understanding with how we are made right with God. And that's what it says about the Pharisees. It says they did not understand God's way of making people right with himself. He makes us right with him, not through the law, but through faith. Righteousness, it says in Romans, only depends on faith. Faith in what Jesus has done, not in what we do. So the good I want to do, I don't do, and the bad I don't want to do, that I do. I remember this was my story for the longest time. I so struggled to find confidence in my walk with God because honestly, when you're relying on your own performance, it's a roller coaster because I'd have good weeks and bad weeks, good days and bad days. And I remember feeling convicted over certain sins in my life or certain things I wanted to get rid of in my life. And in high school, I used to literally write down on a calendar when last I committed the, the last sin, hoping that if I just persevere for long enough, it would not be an issue anymore. How many of you have ever tried to have a sinless week? Like this week, I'm going to be awesome. I'm going to be great. Five minutes later, you've already failed. Like, what am I doing here? Where's the victory? Where's the, where's the fullness? Where's the godliness? Where's the holiness? And we start to struggle with these things, and sometimes we try to be better. We strengthen our resolves. We improve ourselves. I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm, I'm going to be more considerate. I'm going to kick that habit. I'm going to break free from this negativity. And we try to do all these things that begin to bolster our faith. We're trying to make up for something we feel we lack. So if I just read enough books, and if I just listen to enough worship, like if driving, how many of you have tried this? I know that I'm going to um, you know, potentially harm my colleague this week that's been so irritating, so I'm going to listen to worship on the way to, church, to, to work. And if I spend enough time in worship, how many of you, and I'm going, to, I'm going to put my hand up and say that I've done this, you will worship in the car, and somebody will cut you off, and you'll swear at them and go back to worship, Right? Come on. Because we're trying all these, these gimmicks, not talking about worship, but not understanding why we worship, not understanding the heart of worship. We attend seminars and we place boundaries, but then the moment the pressure is on, the true self emerges again. And in my life, I have regularly been disappointed with myself. Often, often my responses, um, the, the thoughts that I've had, the the, the, the way I, I've extended myself trying to gain something I felt I lacked, the places I've, I've overstepped my own boundaries, I've often been disappointed with myself. And in the past, I used to really feel that my disappointment with myself was proportional to God's disappointment with me. And so, I'd love to lead boldly Jesus, but had a really horrible week, and I don't feel like I'm worthy. Or I'd love to just help people. I'd love to pray for somebody, but I don't think you could move through me because I haven't been faithful enough. And it would rob me of my confidence before God because my conscience would continually condemn me. And condemnation will rob you of your confidence before God. It will rob you of the ability to pray with faith. It will rob you of your sense of self-worth. It'll rob you of your understanding of your significance and the calling that God has for your life. And then I discovered what the problem really was. My issue with, with, with failing, my issue with being flawed, my issue with not being able to overcome certain things. 
And it wasn't a will problem. It's not a problem of will. Oh, I didn't will it enough. I didn't want it enough. It wasn't a desire problem. It's not that I didn't desire it enough. Paul says, I end up doing the things I hate. I desire to stop doing those things, but I still do them. It wasn't a motivational problem, and what I needed wasn't another pep talk. I had somebody once refer to me as a motivational speaker, and I got up and told them, I'm a demotivational speaker. I'm here to get you to give up so that Jesus can save you. Give up on your own strength. Let go of your own righteousness so that he can come and be our complete righteousness. And this is where, the, where I discovered where the source of that, that problem really was. It's in Mark 7, verse 21, verse 23, and in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it shows us these things. But it says, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And Jesus was speaking in the religious sense. It's not about what you eat that defiles you. It's not, it's not what you do on the outside. It's what's happening on the inside. This is where the problem lies. Before we sort out the problem here, we need to sort out the problem here. And too often, we're talking to people about, about how to fix this instead of how to fix their eyes on Jesus, how to put their faith in the sufficiency of what he has done. So the problem is, is that we have what I, for the sake of today's message, want to refer to as a tomb, that we have this tomb in our hearts, in our chests, called our heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the issue that we have right here. Before we talk about everything else in the world that's wrong, we need to look here. I remember, um, I think it was the Times newspaper, or one of the, the really old newspapers, they sent out questions. They were doing a column or a piece on what is wrong with the world, and they asked some, some, uh, some religious leaders and different people, and, and one of the people that they asked was G.K. Chesterton, and they asked him, what is wrong with the world? And he replied, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I am wrong. It's here. This is what we need help with. This is my greatest need right here. If we're asking God for things, before we ask him for, for financial gain or for you know, security in our career or for that relationship we're longing for, the, the, the deepest cry of our hearts is, God, deal with me here. Deal with me here and what's going on inside. Because that's something I cannot fix by myself. So you see, there has to be a step one before you can go to the next step. Because telling sinful people to make good choices is like take, t- telling a man who is drowning to kick harder. Can you imagine a lifeguard doing that? Like there's a guy who gets swept out by some riptide and he's like drifting a you know, mile out to sea and the, the coast guard jumps into a boat and... and, and you know, brings the boat up alongside him and just shouts, just kick harder, swim. He is drowning. If he knew, it's not like he's going to go, oh, oh, wow. Oh, sorry, guys, I can swim. I'm fine. Sorry, you guys can go back. I'll just swim back to shore. And for too long, the church has shouted at people, just kick harder, just try harder, just do more. In fact, what a lot of lifeguards do is they actually wait for the person. 
I know of lifeguards. Uh, 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 my youth pastor, when I was growing up, actually used to be a lifeguard before he became a youth pastor. And, and he told us of a time where he had to swim out to somebody, and this person was, was kicking and punching and scratching, just trying to grab onto anything. And so, and so what they would often do, these lifeguards, is they would swim out to the person and then knock them out, literally punch them and knock them out so that they can save them. Because when the person stops kicking and fighting, they're in a position to be saved. And so many times, God's literally, we're saying, no, God, leave us alone. We'll do this in our own strength. We're kicking and we're, we're screaming and we're doing everything we can. And God's literally just going, okay, when you reach the end of yourself, I'll finally be able to step in and save you. And so reaching the end of yourself, giving up, can be the greatest gift that any of us could ever receive from God. Because in that moment, we understand what grace really is. So what we need is, is not good advice. We need a savior. Jesus didn't say, I, you know, I, I came to earth to give people some good advice and some lessons, some moral lessons of how to live. And he says, I have come to save and seek, to seek and save that which was lost. We need a savior, somebody to rescue us from our sinful hearts. The Bible says that we're dead in our sins. That place of death, it's, it's not something that, you know, you can shout at somebody who is dead and say, raise yourself. And they'll somehow find the motivation to raise themselves. Because we shouted loud enough. And so that's why I love the story of Lazarus. And I want to end here in John 11. I love the story of Lazarus and what it represents and what Jesus did and the example that it is to all of us. Because in John 11 and verse 38, if you have your Bibles, you can turn here because we're going to be here for the rest of the, of the time. John 11 verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time, there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. And in the Hebrew culture, a spirit, the spirit of a person would hang around them or still be with them for three days after the physical body died. But on the fourth day, they believed that spirit had departed, and they believed that the person was fully dead. And so Jesus had heard that Lazarus was sick, and he literally delays his coming for four days so that everybody can know that Lazarus is truly dead. And the Bible says that we are dead in our sins. The people that, that, don't, that aren't able to, they are disconnected from the vital life of God on the inside. A relationship with God is life. And because of our sin, all of us, without fail, no matter how hard you try, have been cut off from that life through sin. The relationship between us and God was severed. And this was the need that we had. It describes the tomb of Lazarus as a cave and a stone that lay against it. A cave is a hollow place that's cold and, and hard, and the stone lies at the entrance. And, you know, so often I think that our hearts are like that, hardened to the voice of God, shut off. We've, we've closed certain parts of us off. We're not able to, to experience life in those areas. It's filled with death, just like when Lazarus was put in that tomb. But it says that Jesus groaned as he approaches the tomb. 
And this is one of those things that we read over in the Bible and we just miss. It's like three words that he groaned within himself. But what I see here is the compassion of a loving God. Can you imagine Jesus walks up to the tomb? He knows that he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But it brings about this physical pain within Jesus, this compassion that he has for the lostness of the human heart, for the hardness of the human heart, the sorrow over the condition of man's heart. It's how we are born. It's, 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 it's our condition as humanity. That's why before Jesus, there was no hope for humanity. We don't need to teach children. We don't need to send our children to sin seminar. They're able to sin just by themselves, just because it's in our hearts. Foolishness is bound to our hearts, even from a young age. And that's the sorrow that sent Jesus to the cross. That's why Jesus showed up. He showed up. The Bible says that, that in the book of Romans, it says that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us in this. He didn't give up on us, but he came. And so Jesus comes to this tomb, and in verse 39 it says, he says, take away that stone. We can just leave that scripture up there so you can follow along there. But he says, take away that stone. The scriptures tell us that Jesus comes to the heart of man and he stands at the door and he knocks. And Jesus says, if you will open up for me, I will come in and I will eat with you. I will have fellowship with you, my father and I. You will, you will have fellowship with God. So Jesus comes to the hardened heart of man and he says, take away that stone. But Martha responds, Lord, there is a stench. This place is filled with the smell of death. And how many times in my life and how many times in our lives have we been afraid to let Jesus in or to be honest with Jesus because of the stench that we knew, that we felt, the shame that we felt, the guilt that we felt, the condemnation that we felt. And so do you see how if people are desperate for change and they come into church and we tell them that they stink, we're not opening up their hearts. We're fortifying that stone that lies in front of the entrance. See, Jesus is something about him that encourages us to open up and say, Lord, I need help. He's not afraid of that odor within our hearts. In John 11, verse 40, it goes on and it says, Jesus said to her, and I love this, that I not say to you that if you would believe if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. If you would believe, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus says, if you would just put my faith in you, even though you know that you have got sinfulness in your heart, even though you know that you have made mistakes, even though you know that you've done wrong things, even though you might feel unworthy, even though you might feel like you want to seal up certain parts of your life and never let anybody go in there ever again, he says, didn't I tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God, that you would see what God can do through a, through a broken heart and, and how he can bring life to that which is dead. It speaks in Romans 4, one of my favorite scriptures where it talks about Abraham and how the promise that Abraham received 
was by faith and not according to the law. And then it goes on to speak about how Abraham hoped against all hope. He, 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 there was no hope, and he did not consider the deadness of his own body or that of his wife's womb. In other words, what God can do in your life is not determined by what you can do in your life. Because it says, because he put his faith in the God who brings, who calls life forth from the dead. And that's the faith that we have. This God who is able to call life forth from the most dead place and, and, and things in our lives. What did Martha have to believe? I, I believe that Martha had to believe in the love that Jesus had for Lazarus. When they sent for Jesus, Mary and Martha said, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. The one whom you love is sick. They understood that Jesus loved Lazarus. And Jesus loves us in spite of our sin, in spite of our death. And I believe that as they rolled that stone away, it was representative of the stone being rolled away from the front of Jesus' tomb. As the tomb was opened, what Jesus came to do was to, to die for us and to be raised from the dead, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. And as that stone of Jesus was, is rolled away in our own lives, as we open up our hearts, we find the same resurrection. We find new life. We become a new creation. We are made new with Jesus. And we see his glory manifested in our lives. In John 11 verse 43, it says, Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, said to them, loose him and let him go. So Jesus calls this dead, these dead things to life. And I want to encourage you this morning that when you open up your heart, especially those areas that you hide away, that you might hide be behind a facade of religion, but if we're honest for a moment, we know they're still there. If we, if we open up those areas and we allow Jesus in, his presence brings to life that which was once dead. There's a supernatural life that comes to our hearts. And this is the, the result. In Ezekiel 36 verse 26, he says, and I will give you a new heart. You see, this is the gospel. This is not behavioral modification. I'm gonna take your humanity and I'm gonna make it a little bit better. So now before you know, you ate gluten and you didn't like dogs, but now you can do park runs on Saturdays and you can take your dog along and then you can stop by, you know, for some wheatgrass afterwards. And now humanity is great. Jesus didn't come to help our humanity. He came to save our humanity. He gave us hope for humanity. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone. There it is. That hardened heart. And instead, I will give you a heart of flesh. In another place in Ezekiel, it says, I will give you a heart that, that knows me. All of a sudden, this dead heart begins to beat, and we can know God, and only God can cause a dead thing to live. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in other words, you've put your faith in Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so the gospel is not about making us better at life. It's not about enrolling us to a religious program or following laws again in order to try and be good enough. Oh, God, is, he's leaving me, and if I can just be good enough, I can maybe get him to still stay connected. No, you are in Christ, hidden in God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is your new life. You have come forth from the dead. That's why God sent Jesus into this world. That's why we celebrate Christmas. So we could receive a new heart and a new life. And Jesus came to make us new. And so now we're new and Lazarus is alive and we've put our faith in Jesus and we've become a new person in Christ. And let me just say that next year we're gonna do a series on the gospel of identity. Because we need to know, the Bible says that, that we need to undergo the training in righteousness, not for righteousness, we are already righteous, but we need to know how to wield the sword of righteousness that God has already given us by understanding our new identity in Christ, the victory that we have over sin, rather than still going back to repentance for dead works, laying that foundation again and again and again and again, which Hebrews says we need to move on and become mature. So we'll do that. But here's a part of the process. Because some of you might feel like, but I put my faith in Jesus, but I still struggle. Like, I'm struggling with this fly. I don't know what it is with this fly by my... I can feel your pain for me right now. I don't know what it is. This is what happens, and every pastor would say this. When you preach the truth, the devil sends attacks against you. Three days, the Spirit tormented me. But His grace is sufficient. Okay, so... So Lazarus steps forward. He's come to life. And many of you have put your faith in Jesus and you've stepped forward, but you feel like, why don't I have victory? Why am I not able to overcome? Why do I still struggle in this area? Why am I still dealing with the same issues I was dealing with before I was a Christian? Now I'm a Christian, but they haven't gone away. You see, Lazarus stepped forward, but he was still wrapped in grave clothes. He still had the, the clothing from the old life that covered him in the new life. And there was a process by which Jesus wanted him to be loosed from that clothing, wanted him to be, to all of that to be taken off. Like the scripture says that those who have put on Christ, or those that have been baptized, have put on Christ like the putting on of new clothes. And so there's a change that we undergo where we might be called to life but still feel wrapped in death, but the command of Jesus over your life is loose him, loose her, and let them go. Set them free. Free to be alive. It's the freedom that we have in Christ. In Romans 6 verse 8, my final scripture, it says, and this is how you need to believe. It says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Do you know that death no longer has dominion over you? Sin will not reign over your life as it says in Romans because you are not under the law but under grace which is victory over sin. For the death he died, he died to sin 
once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you're dead to sin once and for all. But the life that you now live, you live to God. It says this, so you also must consider yourselves. Consider yourself, consider yourself, consider yourself, consider yourself. Every day, consider yourself, consider yourself. In 2019, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. This is something Jesus has already done, not something you're trying to do for yourself. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make it you obey its passions. You've been set free, so stop trying to set yourself free. This is why the moment we put ourselves back under the law, what we're saying is, Jesus, I will be good enough. When we understand that we are completely righteous apart, a righteousness, as it says in Romans, has been revealed apart from the law. We understand that I am, I, I know today, and your consideration should be, I am the righteousness of God by my faith in Christ Jesus. You are completely holy, completely righteous, completely made whole. This is your identity in Christ. And as you believe that, you will experience the grave clothes being wrapped off of you day by day by day through the process of sanctification. As it says in Romans, that he is perfecting those who are already perfect. We are becoming what we are in Jesus. Our experience is catching up to the spiritual reality of who we are. But it happens as we keep our eyes fixed on this Jesus who is not afraid to step into the darkest parts of our lives. He's not afraid. Jesus steps into your mess. He is present. He shows up. He came to earth. He was born into humanity, to broken humanity, defeated death, called us forward, set us free. But the first step is coming to a place where you can admit, I cannot do this in my own strength. And you begin to put your faith in the God who has done it all for you, empowering you to live a new kind of life. And that is something I am so grateful for because so many times I was disappointed, I was disillusioned. Can I do what God has called me to do? Can I live a new life? Can I be better? And I wanna let you know the good news is you don't have to do it for yourself. You just have to respond in faith when you hear the voice of Jesus saying, come forth, come forth. And I believe that in 2019, we are going to grow in our understanding of our righteousness and identity in Jesus. And it is going to empower us, number one, to have a relationship with God like we have never had before. Intimacy with him, like you have never had before. And the ability to, to experience his presence and his, his influence, his work through your life like you've never experienced before because there is nothing stopping you any longer. You've been loosed and you've been let go and we've all been called to a great calling. And so we serve this God who shows up and we thank God that he sent Jesus as the only hope for our humanity. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's stand this morning. Let's stand and, and just pray together.